We're going to be in John chapter 12, verse 27 to the end of the chapter. The title of the message today, you'll see it come up behind me. It might sound familiar to you. You can't see nothing when you close your eyes, part two. So it behooves us to back up a little bit and remind ourselves why this is part two. So I'll show you a slide you've seen in the past. It's a little complicated because at the time we had some complicated stuff going on and I had to sandwich two messages together into one. It was originally planned to be two separate messages, but here you go. And the first one was, he is a truth-telling agitator, part two. You can do the background on that one yourself. From John 8, 48 and following, that's to the end of the chapter and chapter 8. Then we jumped into chapter 9, you can't see nothing when you close your eyes, part one. And that is the slide we saw that launched us into that. And if you Well, remember John chapter 9 in particular, that chapter is when Jesus heals a man that was born blind. Everybody knew him. Everybody knew who he was. Everybody could tell that he was born blind because when somebody's born blind, that means their eye sockets never operate properly. Their eyeballs don't operate properly. So they look visibly different. And you know them. You've seen them grow up. He's become an adult. He's never been able to see from the time he was born. And yet Jesus healed him of his blindness. And it was hard to argue because there he is. That's the background for the you can't see nothing when you close your eyes. People didn't want to see. And if you'll remember, they tried to argue. They said, "Uh, surely, you know, they tried to just come up with different arguments, you know. And the the man that was born blind argued with them and said, look, he has to be a good guy. How could he have done this if he's a bad guy? You're claiming he's got a demon to be able to do this. Demons don't heal people. And so he's arguing with them. But they're so blind, this formerly blind man is clear evidence that Jesus is real. They don't see it. He is right in front of them. They don't see it. I remember sitting in philosophy class with Dr. Paul Thurman Butler, one that I lean on to understand the things in John. He wrote a book on it, wrote two books on it, actually. And I also learned a lot from him about eschatology. Now, P.T. Butler in philosophy class, I didn't appreciate the class like I should have. I found myself oftentimes my mind wandering because he was such a deep thinker. He had trained us so well that I could take notes while he was, he would, he would give a lecture and his notes, they did support his lecture, but he was not reading his notes. So I could take notes and listen to him and learn from him and there'd be two different things going on at the same time. And then also I could take notes, very meticulous, very detailed and proper notes while my mind was wandering. I could actually write mindlessly and think about something else. So I missed a lot of his wisdom. And one of those times my mind was wandering, I was taking notes, and what he said grabbed my attention because he's such a deep thinker. He said something very practical. Now I want you to understand something about Dr. Paul Thurman Butler. The first time I went to his office, of course I was deathly afraid of him. He was so smart. On the door, he had the uh, Gaither's poster. Now, I got to meet, I don't know if you know this, but I got to meet 
Bill Gaither. And, but Bill Gaither's, one of his quotes was on there, you ask me how I know he lives, he lives within my heart, you know that song? Well, it's a feel-good song, but theologically, Mr. Butler had a problem with it because he had marked out, he lives within my heart with a red marker, and he wrote something like, you ask me how I know he lives, and he wrote in the column all the way around and says, because of the historicity, the geography, or the ge geological, scientific, and other evidences, and it just went around, like, that's how I know he lives. Because um, if you think about it, if somebody comes up to you and say, how do you know Jesus lives? And you go, he lives within my heart. <laughs> feel it, man, I feel it. Nobody is going to love that answer. It's not going to convince anybody of anything. You ask me how I know he lives? He lives within my heart. That doesn't answer the question. You ask me how I know? That doesn't answer the question. You're just repeating that you know he lives in a different way. Anyway, so P.T. Butler was very, very smart. But in the middle of the class, it's, he said something so out of his character. It was talking, the subject matter was, if a tree falls in the woods and no one's there to hear it, did it make a sound? You, you've heard this type of thing. That's because there are philosophers that believe the, that reality is only something that we perceive. Reality is not really reality. And there's a new Matrix movie coming out, and I'm sure we'll explore some weird theology. And if you didn't know it, the Matrix series is actually theological, and it's not Christian. And if you understand that it's fantasy, enjoy it. But don't think it's real. There are cults that think it's real. That if you... The only reason why we are having church right now is because we're all perceiving it to be happening. It's not really happening. We just all perceive it together, so it's our reality. Anyway, he's uh, discussing this subject of if a tree falls in the woods and it makes a sound and no one's there to hear it, did it really make a sound? And, it's, and it goes along with the idea that you only perceive God, so that's why he's there in your mind. And so what I heard him say as my mind was wandering and I was taking notes, he says, all right, you take me somebody, give me somebody like that and I'll take a blindfold and put it on around their eyes so they can't see a thing. And you say, hey, is there a tree in front of you as I take them into the woods? They don't perceive it so they don't because they don't know it's there. And then I'll take their head and smash it right into the tree. Reality. Just because you didn't perceive it doesn't mean it's not there. And I thought, well, that is practical Brilliant, and it would be probably trouble if he actually did practice that. So, now, I mentioned you can't see nothing when you close your eyes, part two. Some of you have forgotten where I got that title. So I'll remind you now with a brief video with some lyrics, and I'll ask JC to cut it off at a certain point. Enjoy the music. Oh, 
you can cut it. There you go. That's Larry Norman and the line, you can't see nothing when you close your eyes. It's the way we are. But we're going to go a little bit deeper today as we move into things, but we need to review. If you'll remember when we had a guest speaker from Boise Bible College, Mr. Larrick, he talked about the triumphal entry. After the triumphal entry, then we had a surprising moment where after Jesus had repeated multiple times that his time had not yet come, and it was repeated uh, by others that his time had not yet come. In, in a weird story, some people come and they, they approach one of his disciples, and then two disciples get together, and then they decide, okay, we should talk to Jesus about it, and Jesus never really addresses that, but what he does say probably caught everybody off guard. He said, my time has now come, and that's the way he operates. You don't even just, you could just be blindsided by the truth of Jesus when you're at the very least expecting it. It might even come from the mouth of a child, some wisdom. And here Jesus says something that probably blindsided them, that his time has now come. And that leads us to today. I do want to back up and read the end of his discussion, or our discussion last week. A couple of verses. John chapter 12, verse 25, and we'll look at verse 26. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So I just want to remind you, as what Jesus reminded us, that you can't Love your life. And there, may, there will be moments where you have a taste of heaven on earth and things are going great. But the reality is Christianity is not always roses. It's not always uh, unicorns and rainbows, if you want to say it that way. It's, it's very difficult. To live for God means you are living at a higher standard and you're not doing life like everyone else. It's not following the most trendy popular thing, which is, there's always these trendy popular things out there that it seems like once it hits the internet, then the news media and everybody's like, oh, like one of those things they say, you do you. That's the new thing. You, you do you. And it flows out of people's mouths. It might have flown out of your mouth and you didn't mean anything negative by it or un- unbiblical. But the reality is, if you don't live for Christ, you are lost and your eternity is destined for terrible things. I mean, on this planet, if you don't learn to live for Christ, you, you can't live with hope. Not real hope. And your eternity is not secure without Christ. It can't be. So here Jesus reminds us that about what he's going to do, because he's going to give up his life, but is Servants are expected to do the same, and we're, that's emphasized in John chapter 15. We'll get there, but not today. But then the second verse there, notice that the emphasis is that we are supposed to be serving Him. Just don't forget that. We, yeah, we should be fellowshipping. Yes, we should be studying God's Word, but we also, also should be serving. There should never be any of us who simply 
attend church services. We all should find our way to serve. However, that might be that the Lord leads you. Now, let's jump into our text today, starting with verse 27. Look what he says. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Something's about to happen. Jesus knows it. His disciples don't really understand what he's already kind of indicated he's going to have to go through. And Jesus knows this is going to be very hard. What he's got to do that's ahead of him is so hard that he's going to be tempted to say, God, please take this cup from me. You know, he's going to do that. So he says, should I do that? Should I ask God to make it not happen? And this is the, the thing he wants us to get. We have to serve him. And that means sometimes you have to go through hard things. He is going to honor his father and glorify his father by doing his father's will. He's not going to ask his father to take away the bad stuff. He's got to go through the bad stuff. Sometimes we we do pray like that, Lord, please make these bad things go away. But sometimes we have to go through them to get to the other side of better things. So he's illustrating that with his own life. Verse, uh, don't, don't mention that he's troubled. He is very much, he's got the, probably a knot in his stomach. I don't know if you've felt that before. Like if you go to the edge of something and you see there's a huge drop off and your stomach knots up, this is probably what he's experiencing right now. He's very troubled. His soul is troubled. Verse 28 Father, glorify your name, he says. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. It behooves us at this moment to ask the question, when when Jesus is saying to God, glorify your name, why not ask the question, well, what is his name? Now, if you ask other people who are seasoned Christians, you will find that there are oftentimes different answers because people like to pick their favorites, you know, and they also, we, we, we get tempted sometimes to act like we know more than the other person. So somebody might say, well, it's El, Elohim. That's, that's, that's the name of God. Some might say, well, it's um, Adonai. Well, actually, there's multiple names that were given of the name of God. But if you're going to talk about the one, if there is a one, if you're going to narrow it down to the most commonly used throughout the Old Testament, and even in the New Testament references, Jesus has already used it, it would be a different one. So I'll show you this uh, three words. You'll see them come up behind me. There you go. It was interesting because I had actually someone inside an incarceration facility uh, who showed me that first one you see. That first one, it was written down in the back of his Bible because someone showed it to him and said, this is the name of God, as it was originally written. There happened to be another person in the room who actually knows fluently Hebrew. So I said, this does not look like the name of God that I have seen in the Hebrew because the person was telling me it's Hebrew. Well, that first one, it also 
I don't know if you, I, I imagine things, but it, all, it looks like Jeff to me, written in a weird way. I don't know, it just does to me, but it's not. So the, the first one is in Phoenician. That is the Phoenician language. You see that come up behind me. The second one is Aramaic, and they look very similar. But the third one is Hebrew, and it looks like what I've, I'm used to seeing. That's a modern Hebrew writing. So if you have a Hebrew text of your Old Testament, if you don't know, the Old Testament is mostly written in Hebrew. Part of it is written in Aramaic, and I'm going to reference that or allude to that in a, in a part of our message today. But what is this? Well, it depends on, how do you say it? It depends on the way it's transliterated. There's different ways to transliterate. It's very complicated. If you want to research it, go for it. But here's three different ways it can be transliterated. Look up behind me, YHWH. That's the more common one you see. And then you have the one YHVH, or you have the JHVH. And so the, the first and the last might seem common to you. These are, this is a, these are, this is a Hebrew, that's the way that the Jesus would have spoken these words. As he's talking, he would have been speaking in Hebrew. It's recorded in Greek. It's complicated. But, so the first one, we, Y-H-W-H, notice none of them have any vowels. And the, the first one, Y-H-W-H, the way you would try to say it would be Yahweh, that's the way we would try to say it in English. And then the last one, the J-H-V-H, the way we would try to say it, interjecting vowels, would be Jehovah. They don't even sound the same. And there is no J in the Hebrew language, so it's just a weird way to transliterate. So when you say Yahweh or Jehovah, you are saying, you're trying to say the same thing. But if you want to actually go back to its roots, and more than likely the way it was actually said by those that spoke Hebrew, the Jewish people, even in Jesus' day, and in Old Testament times, the way they would have said it would not have had vowels, so it would have been more like breathing, Yahweh, which is fascinating. When God refers to himself, and it means to be, but if a person uses it in the first person, it would be I am to be, so I am would be the shortened definition. And when God said that he, and when Moses said, who shall I say sent me? And the answer is Yahweh, the breath of God. He would just say Yahweh. And, and you would have to actually strain to listen. But it's a fascinating thing that God his name is like a breath. And, and we wouldn't have life without us breathing life into us. Fascinating concept that this is the name of God. Just, just breathing. You wouldn't exist without God. So when you think about his name, it means you exist because he existed beyond creation. There was, there was just God, and we don't know how he got there. It's just God, and God's so big, it's hard to wrap our head around it. But just understand that every breath you take is an indication that God is what, God is real. You wouldn't breathe without him. 
And this fits our text very well today as Jesus is saying, glorify your name. And then God says, I have glorified it and will glorify it again. There's only three times where a voice comes down from heaven to validate Jesus in the New Testament. And those three times are his baptism, his transfiguration, and in this moment in our text. And Jesus is going to tell us a little bit about that. Moving on, verse 29 and also verse 30, the crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said, an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. God did what he did that in that moment as he spoke. And it sounded like thunder. So it was a powerful voice. Like when you watch a movie and the voice of God comes from heaven, they always have, have some guy with a deep and booming voice. You know, and so he says these, I have glorified it. Okay, it's like thunder. That's, that's, that's legitimate. And the people are questioning, whoa, what's going on? Jesus said, this happened not for me. This happened for you. Because it's validating what Jesus is saying. Okay. Now for a moment, we're going to have to address an issue. And it's not a comfortable issue. So if you're one that thinks you've got it all figured out, you're arrogant, just so you know. I don't have it all figured out. I'm still learning. And every now and then, you'll stumble across something in Scripture that will challenge everything you thought you knew about a given subject. And you'll, look, you'll, you'll stumble on it and go, whoa, I never, I studied this and I never caught that. Because God's wisdom is so superior to any of ours. So as we're reading His Word, as we're living life, we find new application and, and things are revealed to us at a different level than they ever had before. When we thought we figured something out, God will show us, I'm still teaching you. This could be that moment for you today. And anytime this happens, if a preacher stands on the stage and tells you something, I don't know that I think that way. I wasn't taught that. It's okay. It's all right. Always go back to God's word. That's the answer. It's always in here. No matter what anybody else says, God's word is the truth. Okay. So we're going to talk about eschatology quickly. The men, at our, one of our men's breakfasts a while back, we've actually talked about eschatology a couple of times. Eschatology is the study of end times. There are people that think when you t- study end times, you're always talking about the end of the world. And there are people that live in, a, in their own bubble where they think that they are doing the greatest min- ministry by running around trying to Make everybody afraid. Oh, the end is near. The end is very near. Be afraid. And Jesus himself said, don't be afraid when you see these signs. But there's people that have just, they just run off and done their own thing in the field of eschatology. And that's where they live. And they run more people away from Christ than they ever lead to Christ. Because he, he didn't teach us to try to, to go around and tell him, oh, there was a hurricane over down in, in South, near South America. Did you hear about that? Must be the end. That's not what he was asking us to do. Nobody in the New Testament did that. He says, when you see these signs, and by the way, he wasn't even talking about the end of the world. He was talking about the end of the temple. And it's bigger than that. We're going to talk about that, but... 
We shouldn't be getting so caught up, yes, that's a pun intended, in end times stuff. It was not an emphasis of evangelism in the New Testament, and we shouldn't make it ours. When we do, we are interfering with the work of the Holy Spirit, so let's knock it off. We have a gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, not this bad news of, oh, we're falling apart, it's time, it's coming. Stop. There's a lot of money being made. If you go to a, if, there's very few Christian bookstores that exist anymore, but if you're able to walk into a Christian bookstore, walk into the Christian section, you'll see a whole bunch of stuff about eschatology. People talking about the end of the world. And the only ones that agree with each other, typically you can't get in the bookstore because they're not popular. And by the way, if you want to just follow that rabbit trail, how often when people are doing Christian subjects, when it's popular, how often are they right in their popular theology? Think about that one. It was a majority that decided to give us Barabbas, kill that guy, kill the other guy, kill Jesus. That was the majority, and they were wrong. He didn't do anything wrong. It was the majority that wanted to overthrow Moses more than once. It was the majority that didn't want to go into the promised land. Democracy works great in America sometimes, <laughs> but it, it, it doesn't fit Christianity. We serve God. Jesus is the head. He's been placed at the right hand of the throne of God. It's a monarchy, not a democracy. So let's look at a passage. I want to show it to you. Uh, with eschatology, we'll go ahead and read Matthew 24, 3 and following. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And why did they ask this question? Because they were marveling at the temple at the beginning of Matthew 24. And they're, ooh, ooh, marveling. And he told them, you see this? Not one stone will be left on another. And they, they were in a panic mode. Oh, no. And so they, they, they say, What's, tell, us, uh, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Then this is when he goes on and says that there will be wars and rumors of wars and there will be earthquakes and famines and those, that kind of stuff. That's the stuff that you'll find with these self-appointed experts that are making a ton of money off of people like you and me buying their books and watching their movies because they say this is talking about the end of the world. And he was talking about the destruction of the temple. So that's what people do. They yank things out of context and make a whole theology out of it and make a ton of money. Millions and millions, probably more than millions, have been made off of people who trust these that are guiding them down this path. And there's two questions here. It's the reason why I wanted to put this up here. The disciples, I think, were very clever in their question. Don't miss this. I missed it for years. I used to travel and teach this. I, I would go to churches and teach leadership. Look, this is what the Bible says. All these other books you're reading are going against this verse. And I would go in and talk about eschatology. And I missed something that a young person brought to my attention and said, well, couldn't it be? What about this? And I, that's when it, God revealed to me, oh, my goodness, I missed that. All these years I've been teaching, it's still validated that I was teaching follow the Bible. 
but there's two questions within the question. Did you notice this? Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? There's two different timelines. So when's the temple going to get destroyed, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age, which seem to be connected? And when Jesus answers, he talks about all these signs, and he talks about those days, those days, and those days will be unequaled. And then he makes a transition toward the end of Matthew chapter 24, and he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will endure forever. Then he starts talking about that day. So in my mind, since it's a twofold question, he's answering those days when the temple gets destroyed, it's going to be really bad. Persecution will be like no other time on the planet. But then on that day, one of the things you'll notice that stares at you in the face when he's talking about that day, the big one, the end of it all, not just the end of the temple, he says, basically, there are no signs. He says, I don't know about that day. Only the Father knows. Not even the angels know. Only the Father knows. I can't, he doesn't say I can't give you signs, but he doesn't give any signs. When it comes to that day, you just have to be ready because nobody knows. I don't even know. The angels don't know. Only the Father knows. But there's a whole lot of preachers and authors and teachers out there that will tell you they know. I was in a church uh, teaching a Bible study with a group bigger than this. And as I was teaching this, uh, there was a strange man in the back of the room. Um, and he decided to uh, tell us that we all had to go to Jerusalem before the end comes. We all got to take off and go to Jerusalem because when the end comes, we better, we better all be in Jerusalem. Some weird offshoot teaching thing that he bought into and he had set money aside to take his family to Jerusalem and it's coming near. Jesus can't come back right now though because this other things still have to happen but when those happen we're going to Jerusalem and the weird thing is when Josephus wrote about the destruction of the temple which happened in 70 AD what Jesus predicted in Matthew chapter 24 when it when that temple was destroyed Josephus wrote that not one man, woman, or child connected to Christianity was harmed, even though many Jews were. And his statement was a big one. He said the reason why none of them were harmed is because they saw the signs and they got out of Judea, as Jesus said. When you see the signs, get out, flee Judea. And here was a man in, in the church building telling all of us, when you see these signs, run to Judea. Fly there. Get there. That was weird. It's completely backwards. It's what happens when you read a little bit of Scripture, and then you create a theology, and you leave the Bible somewhere else. You leave, let me say it this way, when the Bible gets left behind, and then you follow these other books and authors, and so-called self-appointed experts. So then I was teaching in another church, and there was a deacon in the church that I, I loved him, him and his family very much, and I still do. But he started this thing because he was reading some of these books, and he got, and that's what happens is you get really caught up in all this. <laughs> and he was reading and reading and reading all this other material. He was not devoted to his Bible like he was all this other stuff. And so he began questioning things. He began saying, but you know, Jesus still, we still have to, we're still waiting on this one sign. And when that, when that happens, then 
Jesus can come. And I said, are you actually telling all of us that Jesus can't come back right now? Yes, that's what I'm saying. That's what he said. Because people, So Jesus himself said he didn't know. The angels don't know. Only God the Father knows. There is no sign for when I'm coming back. That's what, in the Matthew 24, read it for yourself. Don't just believe me. Read it. It's in your Bible. It talks about those days, those days, those days, but on that day, nobody knows. But we've got plenty of theologians that'll tell you they know. And they'll write whole books about it and make movies about it. And then people will boldly stand and say, Jesus can't come back right now. And he didn't, he, Jesus couldn't make that statement. And it makes me want to like step away from somebody who talks like that because lightning might strike or something, you know? It's, it's not good to talk like you know something that Jesus doesn't know. Who do you think you are? And as I say stuff like this, I'm telling you, people get uncomfortable because like, I, I don't know if I believe it. It's okay, you don't have to believe anything. Nobody's going to force you to. But if you believe your Bible, you might want to go back and read it instead of these other things that are steering you away from it. That's what happens. Too many people talk about the book of Revelation. I'm going to quote it in just a minute. And they, you know, my joke, I talk about, they talk about revelations. There's no S at the end of it. So stop talking like you know what you're talking about if you're saying revelations. It's revelation. And here's what most people do. They stop reading. They start reading Revelation, and then they stop, and then they pick up a book, or they go ask an expert, and they don't just read it and believe it. They have somebody else telling them how to think about it. The devil is so clever in how he gets in our heads and our hearts. And if he can interfere with evangelism, you know the Great Commission. We're supposed to be making disciples of all nations not making people afraid of all these signs that are happening. There's a difference. And if you don't see it, the devil has blinded you. Okay, so let's look at a Revelation passage. This might surprise you. Revelation chapter 20, I'll start with verse 9. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, which you'll read about in chapter 17 if you haven't, which is Rome. It says the city that sits on seven hills. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's a passage where it talks about the binding of Satan, who's cast into hell to be tormented. Um, when you read Revelation, it shouldn't surprise you, Matthew 24 has a transition where it talks about the destruction of Jerusalem, and the temple as we know it, which, by the way, I said is bigger than that. It's far bigger than that. Because it was Daniel chapter 2, and there's more in Daniel. Daniel is that book that was written in Aramaic. Hebrew, Old Testament, then the Aramaic. Daniel, Aramaic. That's fascinating. Well, in Daniel, if you'll, you'll notice in Daniel, the language that's used in Daniel is used in Matthew. It's also used in Revelation, like the abomination that causes desolation. And all these different analogies. Daniel predicted, and you can see, ask any of the men, they have a chart in their books I can show you. you. You've seen others, you can Google it. But remember, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and he talked about the kingdoms of man, and, and your kingdom is the head of gold, King Nebuchadnezzar. And then after you will come another, the Medes and the Persians. And then after you, 
will come another, the Greeks, and then after you will come another, which will be worse than all the others, Rome. And then after, and while Rome is in place, while that one's in place, and it's got, it's got uh, you know, feet of clay and, uh, and uh, iron mixed, and, and, when, and then God, during that time, will fashion a kingdom out of, not by man's hands, but by the hand of God. And that stone comes and it crushes the feet of all the kingdoms of man. That kingdom will last forever. Symbolizing all these kingdoms of man will come crashing down. But God will establish his eternal kingdom with that final world power, which was Rome. That's the, if you don't know, Rome was in control when Jesus was put on the cross. It's not hard to figure out. And after that, according to Daniel's prophecy, it's the eternal kingdom. Do we know what that is? The kingdom of God. Jesus was enthroned at the right hand, made king of kings and lord of lords. So if you're a Christian and you're living for him, you're in the kingdom, which will last forever. And you shouldn't be fretting over world powers. Because Daniel prophesied that when the eternal kingdom came, that would be the end of the dominance of world powers because Christianity would have an eternal, it would be an eternal kingdom led by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So you should be comforted in that, not afraid. That's why he said, don't be afraid. Fear God, but don't be afraid of all this fear-mongering that's going on. It's crazy. So this is... It shouldn't surprise you that if you, and I, know, I told you about Haley's Bible handbook, if you read it, Haley's Bible handbook, who was a, he's a, he was a liberal scholar. He didn't even believe in the literal flood. But when he wrote about Revelation, he said, I'm not going to say it's about the fall of Rome, but it lines up perfectly with historical, the historical evidence of the fall of Rome, because it does. The ten horns, all of that. And then Revelation itself tells you, this is, these are the emperors. These are the rulers. Revelation itself tells you. You get to chapter 17, and when John falls down and says, and he's astonished, the angel says, why are you doing this? Come on, I'll tell you what the dream means. And he says, talking about the city that controls the empire, that controls the many waters, the city. And there's ten emperors, and some have already come, and some are yet to be. It's... It's not that complicated. If you get all the way to that chapter and you read, oh, it says, huh, I'm talking about that city. The woman who sits on the beast is that city that it says, he says sits on seven hills, which is Rome. Anyway, it shouldn't surprise you that Matthew has, in chapter 24, a discussion of the fall of Jerusalem and then the end of the world, because they asked that question. When is this going to happen and when's that going to happen? They had a twofold question. He answered the twofold question in the same chapter. You get to Revelation, and it talks about. <laughs> we can talk about it. We can talk one on one. You want, if you want, we can look at it and see what it says. If you just read it and act like you haven't been taught all this other junk, just read it and act like you're in the first century and you're reading this letter that got dis dispersed. Uh, amongst the seven churches, and you're one of the seven churches, and came from John, inspired, Jesus gave him the revelation, and you read it. And just imagine that you're reading it. How would you take it? These things are soon to come. I'm going to talk to you with figurative language. Just put on your thinking caps. He says, this calls for a mind of wisdom. And then he reveals things. 
and you would understand. He's talking about this is all going to come to an end soon. Talking about Rome. And then at the very end, he answers the second question and he talks about the end of the world. And as he's talking about the fall of Rome, he's still in chapter 20 at this part. He's still talking about the fall of Rome. You don't have to believe me. Just read it and try to understand it. Then he, he talks about part of this when Rome goes down. Remember Daniel's prediction that it would be the worst of all the kingdoms, the meanest and the, the, of all the kingdoms of man? Rome. Then when Rome goes down, the devil is bound. After those 10,000 years, it's symbol- Revelation is the most symbolic book in the whole Bible. I don't know if you noticed that. But there's a time of tribulation. And that time of tribulation after that, and if it's talking about the fall of Rome, then it, then it has happened. Rome would be very oppressive, and it would be a long time. And then the devil will be bound. You should read it and see that. Um, because that's kind of special. That should make you feel even better uh, about the power of the devil. Yes, the devil is powerful. But if you read and believe Revelation as it was written, not as somebody tells you to think about it, not me or anybody else, then understand that the devil's power is limited. God's power is far greater than anything the devil can throw at you or me. He has been bound and limited. Understand this. Your life will be so much better if you don't constantly live in such a place that you're always afraid the devil's going to hurt you. Don't live like that. Okay. So I wish I had more time. It's like any message that I preach. It it seems like almost every verse, you could write a whole book on it if you do all the research, but there's not enough time on a given Sunday morning, so we'll just move on. John chapter 12, verse 32. Well, 31, let's do that one first. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Isn't that interesting? Hmm. There's going to be some casting out of the devil even before Rome goes down. Jesus said it in our text. What's he talking about? Well, he's talking about how he is going to be glorified. Should I ask the Father to make this go away? No. He's going to be crucified on the cross. And when that happens, the devil's power is limited then. In fact, it says, now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out? And then you go to look at, uh, I, want to, I think it's 1 John 5, 19. Is that the first one that pops up there, JC? I can't remember. No, 2 Corinthians 4, 3. Look at this. This is very cool. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Verse 4, this is the key. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So even after Jesus has conquered death and the devil has been limited, he still has power because he's called the God of this age. He has limited power, but he's, the reason why he has so much is because people give it to him. If you're not living for Jesus, you are living for him. And more people are living for him than are living for Jesus. Even Jesus mentioned in Matthew 7, only few will enter that narrow gate. Now, 1 John 5, 19. This flies in the face of those who say God is in control all the time. We know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Because most of the world follows the devil. 
Very few actually follow Jesus. Have you been feeling this lately with all this weird COVID regulations stuff? It makes no sense. Most of the world is heading down the wrong path. I know God is sovereign. God can do what he wants whenever he wants, but he gives us free will. And because of that, most people choose not to serve him. It's the majority, which is why he's called the God of this world. That's why he's called the one who, that's why we're told that the power lies in the control of the evil one. So don't forget that. He has no power over me because I have surrendered to Christ. I live for him, not the devil. Okay. Now I need to find where I am in my notes because I lost track here, JC. All right, here we are. Now we're in John chapter 12, verse 32. And I, this is Jesus continuing, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He's, you understand what's happening here? Now John's going to give us a commentary inspired by God. He's going to explain what's going on in Jesus' words. As he recorded Jesus' words, now he's going to explain, which is really cool. Verse 33, he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. He's going to be put on a cross. Before crosses, the Romans had been skewering people. They just take people and they would, they would make these, like out of trees, they would make these posts that were pointed and they would put their bodies on these posts. But over time, they learn, well, they don't really suffer very much, and we want them to suffer. So they figured out the cross. And that, that's what happened to Jesus. He suffered and died for us. And, he, and so he's predicting he'll be lifted up. This is his prediction. John's telling us he's talking about how he's going to um, die. Now verse 34. So the crowd answered him, We have heard uh, from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? And, and who is the Son of Man? Aha. So they're starting to pay attention to his words rather carefully. And they understand in their law, in fact, it's not even just in the law. You can read the prophets as well, that, the son, that, that they know that the Christ, the Messiah, will be forever, even in Daniel that I referenced before. It's an eternal kingdom. So they get that. Hey, you're saying you're going to be put on a cross. He's using figurative language, but they understand what he's saying. Well, how can that be? I mean, if, if, the, if the Messiah is going to be forever, because they're imagining that someone's going to come, God's going to send a king that will reign forever on earth in a physical kingdom, and God was talking about a spiritual kingdom. And Jesus has to die on a cross. So they're like, whoa, Christ, you, you're saying you're the Christ, but hey, if you're saying you're going to be killed you know, on a cross, I mean, that's, that doesn't work with the law. See, the problem is they're wanting to see the law as they see it. They're wanting to see their Old Testament, that's the scriptures they had, as they wanted to see it. So they're blind to the reality that the Messiah is standing right in front of them because you can't see nothing when you close your eyes. Their eyes are closed to what's right in front of them. And then they've got this deeper, you know, well, who is the Son of Man? Is that different? It's not, it's not different. Jesus is using them synonymously here, but they, they, they've got their eyes closed. They're not getting it. So our text continues, verse 35. So Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. While you have the light, 
lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. He's telling them, you're walking around in the darkness because you choose to. Open your eyes. And when you open your eyes and you believe in me, then you too will be a source of light. Like Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, you are the light of the world. But you've got to open your eyes to what's right in front of you. And when Jesus has said these things, the text continues, he departed and hid himself from them. Though he had done so, so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This is a quote directly from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 1. And it's brilliant that we would have this. I don't know if you notice this. This is still John. John is giving us, after Jesus spoke again, commentary. Jesus said these things to fulfill Isaiah 53 and more in Isaiah. In fact, it continues in our text. Therefore, they could not believe, for again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. That's Isaiah 44, verse You'll see it pop up behind me, Isaiah 44, verse 18, is that reference. And the reason why this is so brilliant, that John continues by the inspiration of God to give commentary that Jesus is fulfilling Scripture, in, particularly in Isaiah. Why is this so significant and brilliant? Because Isaiah has a lot in there about what's going to happen to Jesus. And it spells out very, very clearly, and it plays out almost it plays out perfectly in the prophecies of Isaiah. So if you read Isaiah, it makes sense what Jesus is going to go through. But because they choose not to open their eyes. In fact, Scripture tells us he's blinded their eyes. And, and it's interesting that we were given the passage earlier that the God of this world has blinded their eyes. And here we see again that those who choose not to see, they're not going to be allowed. If you choose to close your eyes, God will make sure they stay that way for a little bit. You don't want to see what's in front of you, you might just walk into a tree. Or worse. You don't want to even acknowledge what God has put right in front of you, fine, have it your way. Now you can't see any of it. And this is the way God operates. He uses people with what they hand him. Took Peter, who liked to talk. Ooh, he, was, he didn't say the right things a lot of times. But you know, he looked at him like, ooh, I could use a guy that likes to talk. Take somebody that doesn't even want to look at the truth as it stares them right in their face. Well, then guess what? You'll be blind to it as it's in front of your face multiple times. Have you, have you met people like that? People that'll pick up a book that's anti-God, Jesus in the Bible, or they'll listen to somebody who's anti-God, Jesus in the Bible, and they'll just believe it. And then they think they're an expert now because they'll tell you, oh, I did research. No, you didn't. 
you Googled, or you read a book that's against this, and you researched? No, you didn't. And you probably read somebody who put false research in there, because if you're saying you deny Jesus, you're saying you deny God, you're saying you deny the Bible, then you haven't looked at the facts. I have. <laughs> somebody who tells me that they've done the research and they've, they've discovered that God, Jesus, and the Bible are not reasonable, they haven't done the research. I have. I've listened to the arguments on the other side. They don't have any evidence against God, Jesus, or the Bible. They just say they do. And some of them actually make stuff up, like Dan Brown. I'm sure you've heard that name. And by the way, Dan Brown didn't make it all up. He also read people who made things up. <laughs> it's amusing. So John gives us some more commentary with the verse 41 and following. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of them. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, they didn't confess it, so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And isn't that true today? There are people that want to say they're believers in the shadows. But they're not going to do it out in the open. Because in this world today, you can be sued for just about anything. And if you stand up for the truth of God's word, very often you're going to be attacked. So you can just say you're a Christian behind closed doors. You can find somebody else who's a Christian and say, oh, we're Christians together. But don't say it very loudly because other people might attack you. You don't want to offend. And that's what they're doing right here. Okay, uh, we'll move on. I, I want to give you a passage out of John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, because Jesus is going to reiterate what he already said. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Life. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus said that. It's in quotes. It's in the red letters in your Bibles. Now listen to him in our text, John 12, 44 and following. And Jesus cried out and said, now I realize the text is coming up behind me. That's okay. Stay with me. Two different things are happening here. It doesn't say Jesus cried out saying. It says he cried out and said. Now, when it separates it like that, I want you to wrap your head around this thought. Jesus cried out and then he said. So imagine him. I don't know how because it doesn't give us details, but imagine him just going, ah, think about that. And said, whoever believes in me, Believe not in me, but in him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in the darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. See, his motive isn't to judge people. But didn't he say earlier that he is the judge? Yes, but he is not. Listen to what he says next, because this is the problem when people read things out of context. They don't get it. We'll read next. We'll, we'll just keep on reading the rest of our text today. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. 
and I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. So he says, there's a lot here, by the way, and you should do some homework on your own and just read it because this is so good. He says that the word he spoke will judge. You see, there is so much power in the word of Jesus. In the word of God, there is so much power. This is the judge. And when you're talking to somebody that is a non-believer, and they might say to you, because that's what they do. You know, like if you, if, if you say, no, I, I don't want to read that book because it, it's actually, I have a faith that it wouldn't be good for me to read that. Are you judging me? Or it might be anything else, you know. Uh, uh, no, thanks, I'm not going to do whatever it is they're asking you to do because I'm a Christian. We don't, we don't do that. I'm, it's okay, you go ahead. It's your thing, but it's not my thing. I'm a Christian. Are you judging me? Or even another Christian you might be talking to? No, I, I don't. I don't think Christ wants me to do that. Are you judging me? No, I'm not. You're, uh, the, look what the Bible says right here. This is what it says. In fact, sometimes you'll get in a discussion with somebody. Maybe the subject is something like eschatology, and you're saying, well, according to Scripture, uh, let me read this for you, Matthew chapter 24, look at this verse, it says, even I, nor the, neither I nor the angels know about that time. And you say, are you saying that, and whatever, you go, no, I'm not saying it, your Bible does. Open it up and read it. That's what, that's what I'm, I'm just letting the Scripture speak. So it doesn't have, that's what Jesus is saying. I'm not, I I didn't come to judge. I came to save. But you're going to be held accountable by the words I've spoken. That will judge you. Oh, it's just like, you know, if it wasn't written down, it didn't happen. Have you heard this? You know, in in reporting, like if something happens at work, oh, it was a bad thing. Better make sure you write it down because if it's not documented, it didn't happen. Jesus has the Word of God documented for us, and we'll be judged by it. One of those things that might be a little confusing to you as you read this, uh, the passage says that God, the Father, has sent me, He's given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. Those aren't necessarily the same things. When you, when you just talk, it's talking, but when you are giving a speech, it's a different thing. And God has made clear what, Jesus, what should come out of Jesus' mouth in either circumstance, and all of it, is the Word of God. Okay, here's the so what part. The preacher needs to stop preaching, so I'm going to wrap it up. The so what? What so what? What have we learned? There's more, but I'll give you six points. Here they are. First of all, Jesus will purposely agitate people to move them. Yes, He will. He will stir you up. He will make you go back to your Bible. And is that what it says? And we might even disagree on eschatological things. We might have a completely different opinion. But what matters is that we are all about leading people to Christ. And we surrender to the Word of God to the best of our ability. Even if we have different opinions, let's get people to know Jesus. That's the main thing. He came to save. We are supposed to be sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, right? That's the main thing. Not something else. Okay. Second thing. You can't see nothing when you close your eyes. There are still people. Even after they hear a message like this or read the words like this in the Bible, they will still go off and their main thing will be some other agenda 
as a Christian rather than trying to lead other people to Jesus? Can't see nothing when you close your eyes. I can't convince you of anything if your eyes are closed and you're just going to, I don't want to believe that. Okay, that's, that's on you. Third thing. Yahweh. God is. You wouldn't even be able to breathe without God. And His name indicates that. Bring glory to Him with every breath you take. The fourth thing. The devil is powerful, but very limited, especially against us Christians. You stay on the straight and narrow. You live for Jesus. And the devil cannot control you. He can't. You're not going to let him discourage you. You're not going to let him distract you. Fifth, Scripture is of utmost importance, and we will be judged by it. And the sixth thing, Jesus' priority is to save us from judgment because he loves us. It doesn't mean just us as a group. He loves you. If there's ever a time when a preacher is preaching a message, let me, let me make, bring it down a little bit more. If there's ever a time when I am delivering a message on a Sunday morning and, and you should feel like it's directed at you, this is that time right now. Jesus didn't come to condemn you. He didn't come to nitpick everything about you. He didn't come to make you feel lesser. He came to save you. He wants you to be okay forever. That's why He came. That's the good news of Jesus Christ.